nice article in the Managing Madrid uh, blog. They're wonderful lads that do a great job there. And worth reading about that man there. Kareem Benzema needs to rest and the numbers reveal why. Welcome to the Managing Madrid podcast where it's our historical segment and it's Ole Marvin's turn to choose the game and he went way back to 2015 to when he was a little boy and he is here to join me, Keon Sabine, to discuss Real Madrid's 3-1 win over Barcelona in that season. Ole, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Okay, it wasn't it wasn't that early. It was 2014, you know. So just, My apologies, 2014-2015 season. <laughs> we'll give but, you that extra yeah. year. I was, it was like, you know, either I pick a game where like I have to like, you know, watch it from scratch essentially, or like where I basically know what happened and I'm just like, you know, enhancing what I already knew. And I'm a lazy person. So I went with Real Madrid's 3-1 victory over Barcelona in the 2014 Clasico, which I think a lot of us have very fond memories of. I'm really glad you chose it actually. When I, and I realized that when I was watching it because... Even though you already know the score, you know what's happening, and it's not that long ago, and it's relatively fresh in your memory. This was a ton of fun. It was back and forth, like from minute one to 90. It was nonstop action. I had notes in the first minute to the 90th. And I'm just, you know, I was, there's so many things that it was just nice to be reminded of. Obviously, this is almost timely in the sense that all we all all the fan base can do right now is argue with James Nisco, which was the discussion <laughs> that year on the podcast every single week. Uh and this was an example of James Nisco playing together. So mm-hmm. um since you chose the game, do you where do you want to start with this? Let me know. Uh I think we could just take it like a normal match breakdown that we usually do. I think this is a good match to break down because there are like these sections of like um of each like each half like there's these certain like minute breakdowns like from the fourth to the 13th minute that like it's easy to go by but I mean yeah I mean I guess we should actually just first start with the lineups though because um people you know they may remember uh the score and what happened but not all the players who played especially for the Barcelona side sure so obviously so obviously for us it was a 4-4-2 Bale wasn't fit so he didn't play so in came Isco on the left wing James was on the right um, Ronaldo and Benzema were up top, Kroos and Modric in the double pivot, and then a back line of Marcelo, Ramos, Pepe, and Carvajal, and then Casillas was playing as goalkeeper. Yeah. And, then and Barcelona? Barcelona. Yeah, so it was, that was, I think, if I'm not correct, that was actually like the first game Suarez um, was going to play since coming back from suspension. So it was like the first time like we really saw MSN. It was Neymar. Messi Suarez up top with Suarez actually playing out on the right wing like for the first half of that season I think people forget but like Messi was not too keen on giving up his position in the center so Suarez had to come in from the right and then you had Iniesta Xavi Busquets um, playing in midfield and Jeremy Mathieu had to had to deputize at left back due to injuries uh, Mascherano and Piquet were, were center backs um, Alves was right back and then Claudio Bravo was the goalkeeper 
I think it was <clears throat> it was interesting to like just to to see how that lineup functioned because you had Real Madrid that is because you had the four midfielders who are all capable of creating holding possession making a line breaking pass pressing well um and just kind of controlling the tempo a little bit I, I also felt like I was watching a more raw version of James Nisco than I than I do now I mean we haven't really seen Nisco play consistently in a long time but you when you watch his 16 17 season it's a much more evolved version of this Isco who was a bit raw at the time in the sense that few few like crazy giveaways um and some weird weird decision with his dribbling and but ultimately an iconic sequence where he dispossesses Iniesta for the third goal um i did like the way the shape worked in this game though in the sense, like in the very first minute you saw that Barcelona didn't really know where to go. James intercepts the pass. They, and then they get it back. They recycle it all the way to Bravo. A minute later, James wins the ball, switches across field to Isco, who's on the left. So it was, it was I'll, be, I'll be honest, it was more of a traditional 4-4-2 than I remembered it. What I pictured was more of a narrow narrow team. But I guess with James on the right, Isco on the left, and between the four, James is the more advanced. Cruz, Modric, and Isco spend a lot of time in deeper positions. But... With Ronaldo and Benzema's ability to drift on the flank, you have that ability to play to have more narrow midfielders. I guess I like the way it looked. I don't know if we've seen them together. Is there a game that you can remember that we had a lineup like this again? I guess in that season you probably saw it again, but honestly, I'm drawing yeah, blanks. I don't know. In that season, we had I think like uh, three or four more times where they played like that, and then in the sixteen seventeen season, I think there was like twice we saw. Isco and Hamas played together, but only I think one of those was in a four-four-two. But I mean, what you brought up with Isco and like the team shape was like there were there were kind of three things I was surprised to see because I mean you always kind of like take away you never remember things perfectly, especially when it's like you know four years ago, um, and also at a time where like I think I didn't have as good of a grasp of tactics. Maybe I still don't have a good grasp of tactics now, but it was definitely worse then. Um, and yeah, I mean, one was that I remember Isco having a better game than he did. I mean, like you mentioned, he still had the crucial, um, dispossession of Iniesta. You know, he walked off to a standing ovation from the Bernabeu because of that, but he did have a lot of giveaways, which, you know, we'll get to when we break down things in the match that actually led to some very dangerous moments for Barcelona. And then like, yeah, I mean, the 4-4-2, I remembered it kind of differently. I kind of, I I remembered it just being like Isco and Hamas were in the half spaces a lot. But like you mentioned, Hamas was more advanced. Hamas Hamas was also really he played really wide most of the time, and Isco would kind of come deeper to help out Modric and Kroos in midfield. So it was just a, a little different for me than I remembered it. And especially looking at how Ancelotti uses the four four two now at Napoli, I just think in that specific game, like it was it was just a little more like focused on you know circulating the ball through the flanks than I remembered and then also Real Madrid didn't dominate possession as much as I thought you know as as much as I remembered they had um which was a little surprising but in the second half I think it it, their 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 domination the ball did pick up a little bit and like there was this moment when we were 3-1 up and they're passing it around the Bernabeu was going ole ole every time we passed the ball and I think like that memory stuck with me yeah like I I took I went away from that like wow, like we dominated the ball against Barcelona. It's like, I've never seen that before. And I think, you know, that's part of the reasons I had such good memories of that match. 
Yeah, this was um, this was a couple months before, maybe two to three months before I actually started working for Managing Madrid and actually covering football. Before at this time, I was working on the NBA mostly, and I remember watching this one in a bar. So, like, I kind of have that same feeling that you did in that. I think the I think what made us maybe think about the possession in a different way is because of the Olays you mentioned, but also because there were long stretches in this game where they had long, long possession sequences. They yeah, weren't we like, did have our moments. Yeah, sure. they weren't throughout the game, but they were they were there. Um, and I will say, I, I was actually pretty impressed by some of the quick thinking and passing sequences when Barca were pressing uh-huh. early on. Um, everyone from the back line to the midfield and just like their ability to think really quick and get out of those tight spots and get the team up the field. And then there was, there was also kind of a remnant just reminding us of Luis Enrique's Barcelona is that they, this was kind of the first time they kind of peeled the layer of paint off of Guardiola's ideology and that they weren't really a high-pressing team consistently at this point. Their philosophy was a little bit different. And so there were times where Real Madrid had a bit of ease kind of passing the ball out of the back and, and Barca just kind of hedged off. Um, <clears throat> Neymar goal since it happened so early? You want to talk about that? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the you know perfect place to start because the first couple of minutes in any Clásico is always both teams feeling each other out. Um, and, you know, the first three minutes, like you mentioned a couple of moments, but like from the grand scheme of things, I don't really know what to say until that goal. When um, So like I, this brings up the point, I think, of like Real Madrid's defensive scheme that I think was overall good, but there were some problems I had with it in the first half but I think Ancelotti clearly adjusted later into the second half that really ended up benefiting us. So like the primary issue when you're playing with, you know, a double pivot in a 4-4-2 versus a side that not only has three in midfield, but has three forwards that, that want to play really narrow, right? So like Messi, obviously he's, you know, he, he's not yet moved out to the right. He wants to play in the center. He wants that false nine role. So he keeps dropping, you know, behind that block. You know, and Neymar and Suarez are, are playing really narrow between the lines. So you have essentially two of our midfielders, two of our central midfielders trying to control, you know, essentially three players in front of them. Iniesta, Xavi, Messi, and when it steps up, that's four. And they also have to be, you know, conscious of the fact that they have two dangerous players sitting behind them. And so on that goal, you see Kroos get sucked in too high and Messi beats him. Beats him, attacks Marcelo, makes the pass. Marcelo kind of flubs his tackle. Um, you know, Suarez gets on the ball. He goes long to Neymar, and then Neymar cuts inside past Carvajal, past Pepe, and he scores the goal. I mean, I remember at the time, I was just devastated when I saw that because I was just like, oh, man, <laughs> Me too. Like, here we go again. Like, just, I can't believe this. Like, you know, this is it. This is done. Um, but the way we responded to it, which is like kind of that, you know, when I talked about going by this match by minute, like, these sections of minutes way we responded was amazing. But like that moment, I think kind of represented like kind of the negatives of the way we were approaching that half. I mean, as it turned out, our positives largely outweighed the negatives. But in that moment, I think it showed how Barcelona could exploit us and how they could beat us in that game. Um, I remember feeling the same way that like, I was like, Oh, here we go again. This is it. We're going to, then we're going to have, Three three goals disallowed, a penalty denied, and Barcelona are going to make it. <laughs> Messi is going to score in the ninetieth minute. Um, if when Pepe comes over to cover for Carvajal, when Neymar cuts and he slips, I feel like there's a mm. different version of this where he doesn't slip 
and he blocks the shot. I'm not maybe maybe not, but the slip I think is That's what the slip is what I think ruined everything because once you slip Neymar, there was no one else. Neymar just had to kind of curl at far post. Um, would you say that goal came against the run of play? I know this was early, but I think Real Madrid, like you said, they didn't let that kind of tire their confidence. If you fast forward kind of throughout the half, Real Madrid have, are still attacking pretty vibrantly. And then Benzema has that crazy sequence in the 11th minute where he hits the crossbar twice, header off the crossbar, gets the rebound, gets past Matthew, I think, and then hits the crossbar again. Um, but so I don't know, like from that point on, I thought Real Madrid kind of improved bar, bar a couple sequences, which, you know, obviously the messy chance, which we'll talk about, but they improved after that. Yeah. So, I mean, there's kind of like three segments, like I want to talk about this half thing. Like <clears throat> you, you mentioned, you know, which I think is a really important point, how Real Madrid had sequences where they, where they dominated the ball. It was not throughout but there were extended periods of time. So from the fourth to the 13th minute, we had 58% possession. And that was our most throughout the entire game. But like throughout that period, like our response was just amazing. So that's like one segment. And then from the 14th to 34th minute, I also want to talk about because I feel like that's where Barca, you know, got back into the game a little bit. That's when like Messi had his big chance. And then from the 35th to 45th, 45th minute, I want to talk about because that's when we equalized. So fourth to 13th minute, like I mentioned, 58% possession. And I think that's when we saw, you know, just how good this team could be in possession under Ancelotti. And it, they again, they played to the flanks more than I thought. Um, but like Ronaldo and Benzema's movement in between the lines, I thought was really crisp. And, and, and Modric and Kroos' ability to find them was obviously on point. But because, you know, you mentioned how you know, this team wasn't really pressing that high. I thought a lot of that had to do with, like, Suarez and Neymar's, like, kind of lax defensive work. I think they also seemed a little confused about what they had to do because Barcelona, were I, they were trying to, like, shrink into this, like, 4-4-2 shape and then apply pressure from there. But, like, it was inconsistent. Neymar was not. Suarez was actually the one who was supposed to go to the right wing to make that 4-4-2. But he didn't always do it. Sometimes Suarez would come to the left. Messi's pressure wasn't always consistent. And so... We would have these like, you know, side to side passing, you know, just kind of looking to see when, you know, when is Schwarz and Neymar kind of got to get out of position and then we'd switch play to Marcelo. And once we got into the middle third, we attacked so fast. Like, I don't remember the tempo of our final third play being that fast, but like Marcelo would get the ball, he'd look up and immediately it was a cross. Like it was really patient looking to disorganize Barcelona's structure. And then once we got the ball into an advanced area, it was attack the box instantly. And so that was not something like I really remember and I was surprised to see that, but it was also quite thrilling and exhilarating to watch. So like, like you said, even though, you know, we knew the score, there wasn't really any tension, you know, it was, it was just kind of like a pleasure to watch us play the ball around. And then that, that part of it kind of subsided, you know, around the 13th minute. And so for the 14th to 34th minute, Barcelona had 62% possession and, I, I think that's when our kind of like defensive issues kind of sh- showed a little again, where I think, you know, Kroos especially, you know, was Kroos and Modric, I think the first half did well overall. I'm nitpicking a little bit because they had to control so many players, but there were moments where like Kroos would try to lunge on Busquets and, you know, 
the spaces between the line where, you know, our, our line would break a little bit. Ramos would get attracted and there was space behind. So, like, I don't know if you saw, like, Xabi Alonso when he was doing a video for the coach's voice talking about Messi's nine. false nine. Yeah. Right, yeah. You know what I'm talking about, yeah. right? Like, and he said, initially, you know, Messi would drop and I'd get, you know, I, I get attracted first to Xavi, you know, and then that would cause Ramos to step up to Messi and there was this space in behind to exploit. And Xavi said, like, eventually Mourinho told me, you know what, don't go press Xavi, stay on Messi and let Ramos stay behind. And so that gave Barcelona more control, but Real Madrid became more defensively sound. And I thought what we were doing in that first half was Kroos kept stepping up onto the midfielder, you know, and it, it kept drawing Ramos inwards or Kroos would step on the Messi, dropping deep. You know, and it just made things a little more dangerous for us. And I thought Ramos, who I don't remember being a significant player um, before I rewatched this match, I thought he had a really amazing game with all the interventions he was making, especially with Pepe. Yeah. Um, but ironically, Barcelona didn't create that many dangerous chances from that. What they created their dangerous chances from were giveaways. So like in the very end of the 22nd minute, Kroos gives the ball away. You know, Messi gets between the lines and he has this shot from the top of the box where, like, you know, he kind of scuffs it. It's comfortable, safe for Casillas. Then Casillas rolls the ball out. You know, you said Isco made some weird decisions. Like, he tried to take on Busquets and it wasn't really convincing. He lost it. And then Suarez is freed down the right. He crosses it and Messi misses, like, an absolute sitter. You know, credit to Casillas. He made an amazing save there. I think the XG on that chance was, like, 0.56 or something. And I thought that that was a game-changing moment because we had been better up to that point. But if Messi puts that away, it's 2-0. And I think the entire complexion of the game changes. But Casillas saves that. And that was really Barca's last significant chance of the game. Um, yeah, and then, I mean, they, they had one moment where, like, Messi beats Isco and Marcelo and Neymar, you know, has a shot, but Kuch Carvajal blocks, um, which I don't remember. But I think Carvajal, you know, after he got beaten for that first goal, had a really good game that I think we forget about. I think like a lot of us remember that, like Carvajal for like getting beat on that goal. But after that, defensively, he was really good. So I mean, there was those moments where I felt like, oh, uh, you know, we, you know, we dipped a little bit. Barca had their chances, and that was crucial for them. And then, 35th minute, Marcelo gets sent on the overlap. He puts in a cross, handball. Ronaldo equalizes from the spot. One one, and you know from then on we never looked back. Um, Casillas made two pretty spectacular saves. The Messi one, I didn't. I just thought he, it went wide. Um, I didn't even know it was saved until you see the replay. You bringing yeah. up these stats also reminds me that this is the first game we've done in the segment that is new enough to have stats for, because it's the <laughs> it actually it's in the who's who scored era. It qualifies. You can look it up on who mm-hmm. scored. You can look at all the heat maps stats. Um, we're used to just seeing, we don't even, not only we don't have stats for the games we watch for this segment, but there's also no minute counter on the broadcast. So we have no idea what minute it is either. So it was just nice change of pace. Um, isn't there, isn't it funny when I, when I watch that sequence where Messi misses that, the one you just brought up that Cruz gives the ball away, um, and, uh, no one's covering the hole behind him. So Messi gets it there eventually. Um, Casillas makes a great save and then he throws it out to Isco who could have done a million things but decided to dribble into Busquets lo- loses it yeah. leads to Dani Alves Messi misses point blank that should have been 2 nothing. and if that and not only 9 times out of 10 
99.9999% out of 100. That's a goal from Messi. I, I just, it's crazy that he missed that. I thought it was as soon as the ball came to him, I was like, that's a goal. Um, and he misses that. And that is the margin of error that we're talking this historical segment about one of the more memorable classicals in the 3-1 victory. That that could have been scores two Scores that notes. we're not talking about this game. What's that? If he scores that, we're not talking about this game right now. <laughs> or we are, and we're, it's, a, it's more of a gloomy podcast, and we're reminiscing about <laughs> a, a really tough loss. It, that, that was the margin of error. Um, just remarkable, really. Um, and, you know, Modric had... I remember Modric throughout every season... Or, sorry, every game leading up to this, and now it's kind of... You can add more to it every game because he's older and not as good. Uh, he always had one customary giveaway in each game we played he would have a perfect game otherwise perfect game defensively offensively we'd have one shocking giveaway that made no sense and was out of character and he had one in kind of like about 10 minutes later um where he gives it away and messes on the left and he crosses it to suarez and if it wasn't for pepe darting back and making an incredible recovery to intercept the ball suarez has a free header at the far post too so um i don't know maybe just not to get lost in this and in the, to not to praise the Barca player, but Danny Alves was unbelievable, I thought. And kind of reminded me about how good he was. And he still like has his moments when he's a bit older, but he owned Isco and Marcelo over and over again. He owned Ronaldo at, you know, this is like pretty much peak Ronaldo we're talking about. Um, his IQ defensively is off the charts, I thought, and just really good game from him. Uh, first half things. Anything else in the first half? Um, no, not too much. I think we pretty much covered it. Um, yeah, I, I mean that. Like, I think like basically just to like because I was going by minute by minute segment. Just to like the only thing I mentioned thirty five to forty five minute um segment was that like the Ronaldo goal, but that was when we kind of got a little more possession back, and you know we basically going into the second half we had a little bit of the momentum on our side, and so second half. Um, you know, this is when, like, by the hour mark, we had taken over the game. And so from, like, you know, 46 to 61st minute, you know, and this is also when we got more possession overall. So we had 45% possession overall the second half, 46% from the 46 to 61st minute. Um, this is this is also where I thought our defensive, you know, our our cross and modders became slightly more disciplined. I think you really saw it after our third goal, but you saw a little bit of it beforehand, but a little more inconsistently, which makes me think that this was something Ancelotti corrected at halftime because Kroos, um yeah, so so the goal where we scored in the 50th minute was from a corner. Um, and it's easy to just think like, you know, it's just we outplayed them on a set piece. It just happens. Um, but it was more than that. So there was a counterattack that that essentially led to that corner. And on that counterattack, you had Kroos essentially, you know, he's he followed Messi somewhat. But he quickly shuttles back after that space is exploded and they hit Neymar in behind to help Carvajal essentially dispossess Neymar and set Real Madrid on the counterattack. And I think that was a crucial moment where I think it clicked in kind of Kroos' head that, like, if I can focus more on compressing this space between the lines, we can we can start engineering numerous counterattacks because Barcelona were playing so narrow, virtue of 
you know, the midfield, obviously, but also just because of the of the players they were playing up top. If you're going to play Suarez out wide, and and if you're going to give young Neymar total freedom, they're going to come into the half spaces and they're going to sit there, and Messi's going to come deep. So you don't necessarily have to worry about defensive width. And so once that happened, we scored. You know, I, I think I, I think there was a change there, um, and then in a crucial moment, Rakitic comes on for Xavi in the in the like. 60th minute i think yeah. he comes on um, and take the corner chavi was going to take right and the basically that was not the f- only instance it was like one of like three instances where rakitic's corners would spark counterattacks and the commentator in my stream just kept mentioning that over and over again how like rakitic's corners were more dangerous uh, to barcelona than they weren't to us and it was you know it was 100 true so in that first corner he takes we clear it that's the moment where isco you know, who hadn't been very good up to that point, you know, you know, shows excellent hustle, beats Iniesta to that ball, releases Ronaldo, who releases James, who releases Benzema, and we score 3-1. And, you know, that's pretty much a game right there. And after that, I thought defensively we were close to perfect. You know, Kroos, you know, almost completely stopped, you know, biting and going deeper and trying to close down Busquets. He would maybe track Messi a little bit, but he'd, you know, he'd, he'd stay in line with Modric, Hamas and I forgot to mention this. Hamas and Isco really narrow the entire time. So I mean, it's it's not like Ancelotti like didn't know Barcelona were gonna play like this, you know, because he asked his midfield to be narrow. He just didn't, I think, communicate to Kroos enough how disciplined he wanted him to be, and it was just counter attack after counter attack that we produced no shots from almost because every time the final ball, whether it was Ronaldo, Hamas, Marcelo, Benzema, Isco, we we kept messing it up, and Ronaldo like I. Now that Ronaldo's gone, I forgot just how frustrated he gets, you know, when attacks break down or when he's not past the ball. Like, he was so mad throughout that entire period that we were winning because we kept messing up the counterattacks. But, like, defensively, from then on, it was an absolute clinic. And there's a point where the commentator, and this was Spanish commentary, said, like, hay poquito espacio para jugar. Like, to something to that effect, he said, which means, like, there is so little space for Barcelona to play. And I think that just summed it up perfectly for me because... The way we were congesting that midfield once Kroos disciplined himself, it was essentially game over because there was like 20 counterattacks after that. The counterattacks were so crazy because you couldn't keep your eye off it. And I think what's frustrating now looking back now and even then was that we still haven't had a, a thorough like waxing of Barcelona in, in really since yeah. 1995. And this was a moment where that could have happened. And we botched so many counters. Like you mentioned Ronaldo. Also, like, James was getting pissed off a couple times at Ronaldo for not for not passing because he was open in the box. And if he just gets it to the far post. Um, but this, it's funny. Again, we me- we mentioned the Messi chance. It could have gone 2 nothing. This also could have been, like, 4-1 or 5-1, which I think is annoying because we haven't had that one really big victory over Barca. And 3-1 is about as big as it gets for Real Madrid so far since really, again, since 1995. I don't know if we've had, I've we had a 3-0 in the early early millennium, um, but really we haven't had much since. Um, yeah, the counterattacks were crazy. Um, you all, like also mentioned the defense just kind of shored up after the 3-1. Ancelotti also made every defensive sub in the book he could have made because he brought <laughs> he on Arbeloa. Iara and Hedera. Hedera, Iara, Mendy, and Arbola, yeah. It's yeah. like, I think Ancelotti's, like, second half management, like, from the halftime talk onwards, I think was just perfect. You know, like, 
we often talk about Ancelotti, like people say, you know, he's not a tactical manager, like he's just, you know, a good man manager. And like, I don't think Ancelotti is quite at the level of like a Guardiola, a Klopp or Pochettino, but he was a legitimately good tactician. And I, I, I think we overlook that sometimes because he was also a great man manager. Like, you know, the players loved him. I mean, I, mean, I think the only player like that he had a little bit of tension with was Bale. Um, but I mean, that's about it. I mean, even like Zidane, who you could argue is like maybe the only better man manager, even Zidane had tension with players. So, like, I mean, that's unavoidable. But I mean, that, I mean, the second half was a tactical masterclass. Like, I don't know how else to put it because he adjusted, he made like the subtle differences in that midfield line that essentially completely shut down Barcelona's offensive game. And then, you know, when we were 3 1 up, he made he made the necessary substitutions that, you know, essentially secured the result when, you know, it was, I think, like he made all of these in like the 80th minute onwards. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I was going to say something after that. And I can't remember. So I'll, uh, so I forgot what I was going to say. So I'll let you, I'll let you say what you want to say. The, when Isco takes the ball away from Iniesta, who was it? I, was it Matthew who was, who was the other guy coming over to, to close or was it Mastrano? I can't remember now. I can't remember. It was some, I, it, it was, was either a bald dude or a ginger. I couldn't really tell. Even I, I didn't bother to <laughs> check the, to, to closely examine it, but whoever that was, if I think he should have just stayed put instead of coming over, because I think that because Isco took two players out of the equation there, um, but maybe also just a good good time to point out that Matthew was a huge liability for Barcelona in this game. Yeah, um, they they went from he was not back. well. This is like a team that would have normally had Abidal or. Um, or Alba, Alba, like in years past. And this is a huge step down in the left back slot mm-hmm. for them. Yeah, I also uh, was looking yeah, at... Sorry, Ine- sorry, go on. Well, I was look- also looking at Iniesta's performance. Uh, who Iniesta was off in this game, and then he later comes off injured. Xavi also wasn't that great. And I think this wasn't the end. I, I would have loved to have said this was Iniesta's... Kind of, this was where it ended for him, and this is like where his decline was. But the year after, he was he absolutely dismantled us in the Bernabeu when Rafa was in charge, and it was four <laughs> 0 or four one or something. Four um, 0 yeah. So he he was far from finished. But that particular game, he wasn't great. Um, yeah. I do think that is where Iniesta started declining. I mean, because he had big performances after that. Mm-hmm. But like it wasn't peak Iniesta, Iniesta after this. But this was definitely the season where I think Xavi was like. Yeah, I, I don't think you're world class anymore, buddy. Um, what other notes do you have from this? Yeah, I mean, I just wanted to mention, like, overall XG was in our favor, not by a lot. It was one point eight eight to one point three, but you know, XG tells you the significance of your shots, and I, I think that's fair. I mean, what rewatching the game, like knowing, having a better understanding of what quality on what quality shots on the field are going to look like, I kind of suspected it was going to be like that. But had we, because I think we had at least like seven or eight counterattacks, no exaggeration, that second half where like had we turned three of those into shots inside the box, our XG probably would have been closer to like three. And I think we could have made it, like you said, four or five one. So, I mean, the XG, like, it, 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 I think it gives an accurate representation of shot quality, but not necessarily like how much better we were than Barcelona, especially in that second half. Um, yeah, I mean, really fun game to watch. Um, yeah, it, I was surprised by a couple of things I saw. And yeah, that like 
after that third goal, it was just exhilarating in football and also frustrating at how you know we couldn't be clinical with the final ball. Uh, I forgot how much Xavi's face irritated me and his <laughs> constant complaining about everything that he had no even not even any business to complain about. Um, also, miss Carvajal's Leonidas look because. Kind of, I I just liked he looked, looked a bit more intimidating and he was great in this game like you mentioned apart from that that Neymar sequence. Um, have we exhausted this? I think Marcelo deserves a mention. Yeah, Marcelo definitely deserves a shout out. He was not particularly efficient per se, but like he was the offensive engine. Like there were, you know, you mentioned like Isco coming deeper, so like our possession structure was like. Um, you know, cross Modric, that double pivot. Isco, like, acting as, like, a third midfielder slash wide midfielder and Marcelo actually being ahead of him, like, in line with Hamas on the right. And, like, basically, like I mentioned, every time you got the ball to Marcelo, suddenly the attack just went to a next level because Marcelo was immediately looking, you know, to play that final ball. And, you know, if it happened that we approached, you know, the final third in more organized fashion... You know, Marcelo would go one versus one, and he'd create something. Like there was some, mo- there was a moment early in the first half where, like, he receives the ball in between two defenders, and he like does this like chop, you know, like behind his back, and like he completely gets away from Xavi, and he puts the ball into the box, and it just misses Benzema. And had that reached him, that would have been that would have been a goal right there. Like I thought he was really impactful throughout that game, and it's you know it was fun to go back and you know watch peak Marcelo. And, you know, we haven't seen that Marcelo. You know, in like what, like eight months or so now. You know, that was that was really fun to watch. He's had his moments, but nothing on the level like consistently. Like this was this was awesome from him. Um, before like before the penalty and leading up to it, um, he had that one amazing flick that goes through Chavi's legs, and then he yeah, gets that's down what the I was about. Yeah. yeah, that's what I was talking about. Yeah. Um, let's take some patron questions that have nothing to do with this game. Um, <laughs> Uh, we have four patron questions that came in about the kind of the current situation. So patreon.com slash managing Madrid. Go there, pledge, get access to bonus shows, our loan tracker. Every Tuesday, Matt Wilty and I, we review Real Madrid's players on loan, watch all their games in the weekend, talk about it. And then any midweek shows, Champions League, Copa del Rey, La Liga, those post-game shows are only for patrons. So patreon.com slash managing Madrid. Questions from these four patrons coming in. So Essa Hariri says... How come Fede got all that faith from, from Zizou and the Real Madrid board, even though he had an uneventful loan spell, never proved himself at Real Madrid, and he was kept at the expense of people like Llorente and Ceballos, who were more established than him and played more minutes at Real Madrid? Is he just lucky? I mean, this is kind of a fair question, I think, actually. Um, well, I think one is that Valverde is content at the moment with riding the bench, um, which was an issue with Ceballos. I still think, you know, we should have put our foot down and kept him here because, you know, we had the power in that relationship. And truth be told, I think, you know, we need Ceballos this season, um, especially with the injury crisis that we're having. But, yeah, Valverde was, one, definitely more willing to ride the bench and I, I don't know if I'm totally sold on this theory because the evidence on this is like there's some evidence, you know, supporting this, but also I think some that's not. With the idea that Zidane was looking for like more box to box energy, you know, this season a little more physicality. 
if that is the case, then I think Valverde makes sense because that's what he provides over anyone else. But yeah, I mean, it is curious that like, this is the guy he chose. Like it, it makes less sense that like Llorente was sold regardless. I mean, people kept talking about like Valverde will be a defensive midfielder. I don't think Zidane really sees Valverde that way. He hasn't played Valverde there, but yeah, valid question. Um, but I think it comes at the end of the day more than anything else. Willingness to sit on the bench. Well, that's definitely part of it. The other thing that we can't discount is that um, behind the scenes stuff that only the manager sees. Because we can look at his, I mean, really since Castilla, he, after he left Castilla, where he was good, he fell into irrelevancy. He didn't play at Depor. Um, Sadorf tried to revive him and then he got injured. So then he comes into Real Madrid with really zero, really not zero, but limited sample size uh, at his loan spell. But then there's a lot of stuff we don't see in training. His work ethic, um, his understanding of the game and practice and kind of where Zidane wants him to be. So I think those things definitely matter. Uh, but then obviously the, the fact that, you know, Ceballos, if Ceballos and Llorente say all of a sudden, look, um, we're okay with just being part of the squad. Use us when you need to, and uh, we'll do, you know, 10, 15 games or some Copa del Rey games and blowouts. Cool. Um, but they obviously weren't in that mode. But I think if maybe if they thought that way, then maybe they would have been here and maybe Fede is on loan. I don't know. But this just those are, those are definitely things that are in play, I think. Charles Williams. Well, I think Llorente was... No, go. I I was going to go to the next question, but you jump in. <laughs> I was just going to quickly say that, like, I think Yorente was a little more willing to fight for his spot. Like, I don't think he was as vocal as Sabias was, but like, I think it was just Zidane sitting down and saying, like, I don't think I'm really going to use you. And Yorente is like, okay, if that's the case, then I'm out because I've got this message multiple times. But yeah, I mean, overall, I don't really disagree with you. Well, the listeners now are dying to know who Charles Williams is and what he has to say. So. <laughs> Uh, our next patient, Charles Williams, says, Hi, Keon. <clears throat> um, this was a written mailbag, but I took it on the podcast. In reviewing the goals we have given up this year, it seems like a decent amount of them have been due to individual errors. In the league, you could probably count two to three goals as a clear mistake from Ramos or Arola. I don't remember a season when so many of our goals could be directly tied to a specific error. Do you think it's a sign of the team feeling nervous or lack of concentration? It feels like the team is always one mistake away from getting rattled and getting nervous. Uh, I mean, has it really been that many? Because, like, I think... I can't think because there was the Ariola mistake. Um, Modric. I think he also made a... You know, yeah, Modric, yeah. The, and then Ramos are the three, I remember, <clears throat> that stand out, which... You know, I think all of those mistakes, you think they shouldn't happen. But like over, you know, the course of how many games it's been, I'm I'm not that surprised. Like to me, it's not like out of the ordinary that like this many mistakes would happen over the course of like, I think, 10 games we've played. Um, I, I think, I mean, I think, I, I don't think it's enough to say like, that's like the key issue. That's the reason we're conceding. No, and I, but I mean, also there's been a lot of individual mistakes that have gone unpunished. Um, but also, this is nothing new. I mean, I, you, I can go back to my columns from sixteen, seventeen, eight, and seventeen, eighteen, seventeen, eighteen, especially actually. Um, everyone had like this. Something was spreading where every single person was 
committing careless giveaways from Kroos, Modric, who really we had never seen anything like it from those two. To Casemiro, obviously, and then, you know, even Ramos and Baran coming out of the back. Um, and everyone was was guilty of it. And I don't think it's anything new. They went on to win the Champions League. Um, we were looking at this Barca game that we just analyzed, and there was so many, too. I don't think it's anything new. I think individual mistakes are there every season, even through the games and seasons we immortalize. In the end, um, as you say, cost-benefit analysis and... A lot of this stuff has gone unpunished. Some of it's gone punished. Um, I think you want to gut them and make as little as possible, obviously. And I think in the years pat in the the two years, I, I think you can extend it three years actually. Um, the reason why these mistakes are more and more magnified are because our offense isn't as good to mask them. Um, because you can go through defensive mistakes when Ronaldo was scoring fifty goals a year, it didn't really matter as much. We weren't talking about them, uh, but we could have if we wanted to, but then our narrative would have been that we're negative during a win. Um, but so, but like now it comes to the forefront more because our offense isn't as good as it used to be. And I think also, it, it also doesn't help in certain instances. I mean, these specific mistakes we've mentioned, I don't think really relate. But I think in other instances, especially the ones you're talking about, which went unpunished, when you're not really as organized defensively, <laughs> especially on the counterattack and like you're relying essentially on individuals to win all their duels, just like the number of mistakes they can make heighten because, you know, they're put in situations where like they're them winning their duel essentially decide defines that defensive sequence. And, you know, in those instances, like I think it becomes a little more noticeable, which is why I think despite, you know, there's really only three major mistakes. We get this feeling that there's been a lot because I think, you know, in our ability to control the counterattack, I, I don't think it's necessarily been great this season. I think it's improved a little bit over the course of, like, you know, three of the last four games, like we've talked about. But, uh, you know, overall, I think that's just naturally going to lead to, like, you know, more, you know, more, you know, kind of errors within a sequence because you're relying, you know, on isolated individual plays to kind of save you. Varun says, when you come to a club like Real Madrid, you already are a superstar and elite this is how a player feels internally, and he thinks he's good enough to start. Zidane is the manager now, and he and he benches the potential next generation of Real Madrid legends like Jovic, Militao, Mendy, Vinicius, Brahim. I want to know hypothetically, how can Zidane approach a ready-made starting material like Jovic and say you're a second striker and you'll only play 15 to 20% of the minutes of potential of potential total minutes in a season because there is Benzema ahead of you? How can Jovic take that mentally? knowing you will not be good enough or you will not be given enough opportunities to showcase what you're totally made of. Um, so, I mean, I I will just, this is me talking now, but pretty much every single Real Madrid legend has to go through this process before they become a starter. I don't think it's, <laughs> it's not like, no one is ex- exempt to this unless you really arrive truly as a superstar like a Ronaldo, like... <clears throat> Like a Zidane, Figo, etc. Et um, a lot of these young players, they're going to go through a tough process of s- severe competition, and that's normal, and that's I think healthy. Um, I think the Jovic thing, though, is maybe an interesting case to bring up because if you would have asked me this summer, I would have said he, he, we were signing him as a starter because the biggest hole in this team offensively is the, the it's a need for a pure goal scorer outside of Benzema. Um, so I'm surprised I mean, that we I, haven't seen more of Jovic. Thought, I honestly thought he was. I honestly kind of like assumed he was going to be on the bench like he is now. 
Matt did uh, too. I, I, maybe I'm alone in this. I don't know. I, I really thought that he would. I thought he had a great year at Frankfurt. He was clinical, scored a lot of great goals, ice in his veins. I thought it was a, a sure thing. But I, 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 I guess I, I was open to the idea of him being on the bench. I'm surprised that it, it's been as much as it has, though. Well, I agree with that. Like, I think Jovic theoretically did enough, but like just knowing how Zidane's like offensive structure works, it's it's just quite over reliant on Benzema to like solve some of the issues and I just don't think Jovic has the same ability I think if Jovic is going to start like and be used in like the best way possible Zidane has to like adjust things a little bit and honestly with Hamas playing a little more I, I, and, and you know Hazard you know if Hazard can get in form I think that be- that benefits a situation where he can play more but like I just knowing Zidane's tactics I thought like yeah there's no way Jovic is going to come in and displace Benzema immediately. And you also have the fact that Benzema has been our best attacker. I mean, he has six La Liga goals and he has deserved to start, you know, over Luka Jovic. And like, you know, I think Jovic understands that himself. I don't think he's disappointed at this moment. I think he knows that he has to fight. I think this is too early to be talking about that. Come back to us halfway point of the season where like, you know, Benzema's not going to keep scoring every single game. I mean, especially if his XG holds, he's overperforming a little bit. Then you come back to me because Christopher McCormack wrote a really good article here on, um, you know, I'm guessing you read it or at least glanced at it. He was talking about, you know, just the amount of minutes that footballers have to play, how it's leading to burnout, how it's leading to excessive injuries. My main worry is like throughout the course of the entire season, if Benzema just, you know, plays an insane amount of minutes, like how that's going to affect. I think there is possibility of burnout. I do think looking forward, Zidane has to figure out a way to incorporate Yildiz. But at the present moment, I think it's justified to have Benzema like playing over him. It's it's down the line where we have to see, you know, and, and there's I, I can't make a judgment because Zidane might be planning to use him more in the future. And if that's the case, that's good. But if he's not going to, then I think that's an issue, especially just more than anything. I, I think it's too many minutes on Benzema who's like, you know, post thirty. But when we're talking about like Mendy, Mendy's not been playing because of like injury issues. Like when Mendy's fit, like he was actually starting over Marcelo, and like it actually looks like Zidane has a lot of faith faith in him. You know, Vinicius, like I mean, we can't complain about Vinicius not getting minutes because everyone wanted Hazard. Like we knew this was going to happen. If you want Hazard to come, he's going to play even if he's semi fit, and Vinicius is not going to get minutes. You know, and especially like you know if you have that competition with Bale playing well on the right, like. That's just it. Like, that's the consequence that's going to happen. And, like, Vinicius is going to have to, like, find a way to keep his development on track in this period where he's not going to get a lot of minutes or, you know, maybe he'll get annoyed. We don't know. Um, and Brahim, Brahim, in full honesty, I don't think he's good enough to start over, like, any of the other guys. And, like, in I, I think he's talented, but I don't think he's talented, like, more talented than guys like Vinicius. So, like, in the in the present moment, I think a lot of things, like, support Zidane's decisions it's down the line where you have to come back and critique what he's done yeah so it, but the rest thing I think is worth exploring because I'm not asking Jovic to play in the Champions League final in a classical and whatever but mm-hmm. Benzema's already mm-hmm. had the most minutes of any attacker this season he led the entire right. team in minutes last season played virtually every second he possibly could if he was available, thank God he's not. He doesn't go on international break. That's that's the one I think saving grace in all this that um, he doesn't. He gets that additional rest, I guess, because he doesn't go on the international break. So that probably gives him some more miles he can afford. Um, him and Cruz, I do, I do worry a little bit about burnout a little bit. 
Um, I don't think Benzema needs to play every single game, but mm-hmm. you can't dispute his importance. Yeah. So I, I'm not asking him to be benched, but I, I'm sure you can find room for Jovic. And the Vinicius thing, if you would have asked me last season or in the summer, I would have, I would have seen if we could find a way to play him and Hazard together. But I also didn't know Bale and Hamas were going to be here, so that changes things a little bit. Um. Last one. Sheikh Hatiri says, Hey guys, I've been away for a while, so I'm going to drop a bunch of questions on you. We're going to go through this rapid fire. One, United is again doing terrible. If they don't make it to the Champions League, a likely scenario, I think Pogba will be easy to grab. We shouldn't rush for Ericsson just yet. Um, let, let's just hit these before reading the next one. So Pogba, I this is actually came up in my written mailbag, which is on managingmajor.com. Everyone go read it. Um, publish it today. Someone asked about, should we get Pogba in the winter? And I'm just like, if I'm Manchester United, I think you'd be actually out of your mind to sell him in the winter time because you're going to just spiral even further. You can't afford that. You don't have the luxury because you you didn't sell him in the summer. His price is going to go down in the winter time, I assume. And so you you have to ride the season out with him and hope that he can get you, keep you afloat and get you back into the Champions League spot somehow. I don't think that's going to happen, but... You're going to spiral without him, and they can't afford to spiral even more than they already have. So I don't think you're getting him in the wintertime. The summertime is a different story for sure. Um, but Pogba thoughts? Yeah, so some of the United fans I follow who, um, you know, I, I, I like their analysis. Like, they've consistently been saying, like, Pogba is basically the, like, the, the way United play is, like, no structure in offense, like, you know, Pogba does some magic, gets it in the final third, and then, like, Rashford or someone messes up. Like, you know, and basically, like you said, like, it's essentially Pogba keeping the team afloat, you know, with, you know, with essentially, like, his quality in midfield and the things he can do. And I personally think he's sick of it, which is why he was pushing for a move this summer. I mean, last summer, sorry. But, yeah, I mean, winter is, winter is unlikely. Ma- mainly because, like, who, who are... Manchester United going to sign like even if he's cheaper they'll get significant money for him but like who are they going to replace him with and once Pogba goes their midfield is essentially broken like who, who's going to say is McTominay going to save them no like you know they have to they're, they're going to do everything they can to keep Pogba but in the summer I think the ball is in our court and the ball is in Raiola's court and Raiola is basically the only obstacle to making that happen and how unreasonable he wants to be but um yeah I think a season of Pogba not being happy in Manchester United realizing that like yeah it's you know we need to rebuild again I think we have a good chance of signing him and I also agree like that's maybe not a reason to rush for Ericsson but at the same time we probably still do need another central midfielder like you mentioned burnout for Kroos Valverde is our only backup if we want to keep playing a three-man midfield and we've mostly been playing a three-man midfield this season um, Shay's second point is it just me or did Danny Boy give his best performance in a while as a left back um, thought, we both thought he was pretty good go check the Granada post game show we talked about it thoroughly mm-hmm. number three I think this team is going to do very well this year the defensive structure is really good one of the two goals we received was an individual error by our backup goalkeeper and the other is set piece and the offense seems to be doing much better with our returning players from their injuries my only problem is that Jovic and Hazard are both still underperforming. And four, why hasn't Rodrigo gotten any playing time since his super debut? I don't know if we have much to add because we've already kind of talked about this stuff throughout the podcast, but anything else to add to this? 
I mean, Rodrigo has a million players in front of him, and he's been playing like regularly with Castilla, I think. So he's not going to get much time this season unless we have another like absolute implosion and in injuries, and like we come to a situation where like we need like a you know a twelve year old kid to save us. So I mean, yeah, I mean he's not going to get much minutes this season. Um, let's do patron shoutouts. Um, as you all know, patreon.com slash management, go there to pledge. If you pledge $10 or more, you get a specific shout out on this podcast. So I want to give a shout out to these amazing people who make this show possible. Mikhail Nilsson, Frederick Sundros, John Fernandez, Said Mahad, Juan Balasia 01, Adam Dorsey, Frederick Rentakiro, uh, Leon Stavronakis, Christian Gonzalez, Bjorn Salvador, Essa Hariri, Ilian Zako, Yahya Ibrahim, Willie Reed, Nick Ribeiro, Eric Rogers, Tyler Simon, Saad Omar, Sheikh Atiri, Oluwapamimo Oladonjai, Christian Toff, Charles Williams, Tarek Sphere, Kunal Tilakar, Marin Myrtle, Tyler Dixon, Raul Gutierrez, Raghav Potluri, Vicky Cohen, Gary Kohut, Sujai Wani, Pena Maradisa, San Francisco Bay Area, Brandon Stevens, Castro Moscala, Catherine Pagundo, Zoran Bosnchich, Rafael Servilla, Karen Scherer, Somanshu Singh, Bernard Powers, Ahmed Almayahi, Rovi Tahiev, Amy L., Anthony Armesto, Shabal Sharipov, Fabian Moreno, Varun, Bernard Kufour, Ashik Bashar, AMB6901, Daniel Pinkney, Muxith Dangal, Magnus Lex, Jason Fitz, Solomon Ortiz, Philip Hammer. I need to get Muxit's uh, name. That's kind of throws me off. Second time it's thrown me off. I need to practice that one. Uh, thank you all for your support. You guys are awesome. And Omar, thank you for joining the show. We'll see you guys all, I don't know, some point next week early, maybe Monday or Tuesday. And Hala Madrid. Hala Madrid.